What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Guitars and Stolen Cars bonus episode, Ramon's Talk with Harley and Ben. I have a quick announcement before we get started. The show's official Instagram page has changed. It's now guitars underscore stolen cars on Instagram. So follow guitars underscore stolen cars on Instagram for cool photos as well as announcements. For example, I have a photo. I'm just waiting to post of Johnny Ramone talking to Johnny Thunders with Steve Jones looking on in the background, which was taken at the Rainbow Theater in London in 1977. I have another photo of the Ramones flipping off the crowd before they walk off the stage at the Canadian World Music Festival. So if you think that type of thing is cool, make sure to follow the show on Instagram, guitars underscore stolen cars. So I wanted to have a conversation with a friend where we talk about interesting stuff relating to the Ramones, as well as personal Ramones stories. And my friend Ben Merlis was the guy for the job. Ben and I became friends by playing in punk bands years ago and he's a very knowledgeable guy about punk and also about all kinds of music uh he recently wrote a book called going off the story of the juice crew and cold chillin records which we also talk about uh ben's father also was an interesting guy um bob merlis he worked at warner brothers records for many years uh, which is relevant to the ramones because the label that the ramones were signed to sire was distributed by Warner Brothers starting with the second record and Warner Brothers eventually just flat, uh, flat out bought Sire Records. Anyway, so I hope you enjoy this conversation and find it interesting. Uh, we start talking about how we got into punk and the Ramones. I think I got into the, well, I didn't get into the Ramones and punk because of this, but I remember when I was, I think I must have been 12 or 13, I went to a sleepaway camp. And there were like two punk kids at the camp and, and they were like, kind of, they were like the, the like menace of the camp. It seemed like everybody like hated these two kids and it was always like the entire like staff as well as the hundreds of other kids against these like two kids, but they had this like super menacing presence and uh i think you know i wasn't really friends with them or anything but it made an impact on me <laughs> these two like punk kids were always wearing black and they had their like own secret society within the sleepaway camp was um, it a jewish camp oh uh, yeah it was it was yes <laughs> even better i don't know <laughs> why that just now you've outed me as a jew to, to that, the, no that just makes it automatically more funny and i don't really know why because <laughs> are funny or because it's not because jews aren't like thought of as being like tough and menacing i don't, I don't know yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? But yeah, it was it was a uh, Gindling Hilltop camp in uh, somewhere somewhere off the PCH in Los Angeles. Okay, um, so these Jewish punk rockers did they ever end up becoming like famous punk punk rockers? I have no okay. idea. I don't even know what their names were. Uh, oh. It they just their presence just made an impact on me. That sort of was I think how I was introduced to punk as a thing. And I guess that just made me curious about it. And this was kind of like early days of the internet. So I think I would, I don't think Google was a thing yet, but um, I would do like, maybe I would ask Jeeves about punk. I don't know. I would just somehow search punk on the internet. And like the Ramones were definitely something that, that would come up, of course, when you search like what is punk or history of punk. Um, and I remember Road to Ruin, I bought that CD. That was the first Ramones album I owned. That's why you like that album so much. Because it's the Maybe. first one you heard. Yeah. yeah possibly. Um, and then I got Mania after that. Uh. And um, and then once I got a little bit older, it it was like sort of the, the era of like a little bit before vinyl was cool again. So you could get like Ramones LPs for like eight bucks and stuff like that. Um, totally. Yeah, I fucked up. I sold my dad's Ramones. I, I kept my dad's Ramones records and then I sold them when it was just like CDs. Who needs records? And then like 
five years later, I like bought them all over again <laughs> and it was like 20 bucks for a Ramones record. Fuck. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I did a similar thing too. Now it's probably closer to 40 bucks for a Ramones record. Yeah. I guess it depends which. Um, that's funny. That's when you said you just, that you would, you would ask Jeeves what's punk. That's so specific to a time, you know, like <laughs> how long did ask Jeeves last? <laughs> I was last <laughs> long enough for me to get into punk, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's so not punk too. Let me ask Jeeves what punk is. <laughs> hey, you use what you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't have like cool punk friends. I asked Jeeves. Um, <laughs> and i remember my dad like knew about the ramones and and he was like oh yeah you're supposed to listen to this band really loud that that was his that's what i know about the ramones yeah, that, that was to his really loud sense. Um, and they were really loud like i saw them four times i think yeah i saw them four times and yeah they were a really loud band I think that's something that might get lost on people who are like, they think they're like too cool for school punk rock. Like I'm into really underground shit. It's like those, like that initial like explosion of seventies punk that's thought of as being like, Oh, they were on a major label or they're too mainstream for my underground spiky hair ass. Those bands were tough and they were fucking loud. If you look at that footage of the dead boys playing at CBGB, it's like they're playing through like two full stacks and like, like Ampeg refrigerators as were the Ramones and, and it, and they're fast and, and they're, they're fucking hard. They're like, and those guys were like hard. They were hardcore before there was a hardcore. And yeah, a lot of plus, people who are like hardcore are fucking weak, are fucking weaklings. <laughs> it's true and i feel like too much gets like sire records like had major distribution but it was like not really you know it wasn't like being signed to warner brothers or cbs or something like that it was still pretty bare bones for by music industry standards um, yeah we'd have to like we'd have to like patch in my dad to this call so he could explain to you the difference between being a punk band signed directly to Warner brothers versus being signed to sire through Warner brothers. Like I, I were there any punk bands signed to Warner brothers? Sex pistols in Sex the U S yeah, they're on pistols. virgin in, in, in the UK. But I think and they're the only one. It's not, it's not like they were so successful. They're like, we got to sign more of these bands uh, off the top of my head. Like we're talking about the seventies here. Yeah. I think the Dickies were on a and M, which also, I was looking this up was like, that was like Herb Alpert's label that had major distribution, but was still kind of an independent. Yeah. Yeah. Herb Alpert is a Herb Alpert is the a in a M. old school M. punk rocker, Herb Alpert. Yeah. And the M is Jerry Moss. Um, but yeah, there, are, it's kind of like, I remember reading a book where they talked about, they referred to Virgin records as an independent and it's like, really like or island records as an independent like <laughs> it, it, it's a gray area but yeah those those labels had major distribution i think it was it i couldn't tell you exactly the difference between being on a straight up major label and one of those labels but i think a lot of it had to do with the budget like you know if you were on a major label they'd have like a shitload of money to spend on promotion whereas if you were on sire they didn't that yeah i mean two and two together but i'm not sure about that it, now i'm just speculating but i think that yeah, it's all can it's all speculating. that the, the warner promotion department handled the um the sire roster just as they would war, straight up warner acts at least that's the way it worked with the the record label i wrote about i wrote a book about cold chillin they were on they were distributed by warner the same way sire was and it was like the promotion department at warner brothers would promote big daddy kane well in that case it was the black promotion department would it, it was just like being any rapper or black artist signed to warner brothers even though you were technically on cold chill in warner brothers i'm i'm doing air quotes a lot but i don't think that's gonna help because <laughs> we're like you can only hear us, but I'm, I, I'll just say quote unquote. Okay. 
uh, yeah. but anyway, being on Sire Records in the seventies, I don't know. I'm sure it was fine. I think there was this thing about new wave. The term new wave was being like was coined. Who coined it? Seymour was, Stein. It was Seymour Stein. Seymour Stein, you know, and he directly lifted it from French new wave cinema. And he specifically coined it to promote the talking heads because he thought they had commercial viability. But punk was, you know, it was already, well, first it was a slur before it was even a genre of music. But then after, you know, the Sex Pistols stuff, it really, I think, was pretty untouchable. So he wanted something else to call them. Yeah. And I know Seymour Stein and the talking heads are his favorite band he ever signed. So that's, really? a, that's a fun fact. Which means he likes the Talking Heads more than the Ramones. I can't say I agree, but I do like the Talking <laughs> Heads too. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Ramones were the best band that was ever on Sire Records. Yeah, they must have yeah, been next to Madonna. Works. I'd say I'm just kidding. Madonna's not a band, <laughs> but I like Madonna yeah. too. Um, uh, how did you get into the Ramones? Uh, I got into the Ramones when I was probably. <sighs> I know my older brother had Ramo- had Ramones cassettes and my dad had the vinyl because he worked at Warner Brothers Records and the first Ramones album which is on Sire was distributed by ABC Records I think initially and then by like 70 by the end of 76 or beginning of 77 they uh, Sire switched to Warner Brothers Right. As like distributor or something. Didn't I think Warner actually bought Sire Records? They did eventually, yeah. 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 Maybe a little later. So we got all those records, but uh and and I think my brother when he was a little kid had they would listen to the some of them on cassette. But I don't remember that far back. Like that was I was I was like being born, you know, I was born in seventy yeah. eight. so I was I think what month did Road to Ruin come out, do you know? Uh, I don't know what month, but 78 for sure. I want to, yeah, I want to say it was like maybe May. So I think I was, by the time I was born, Ramones already had four albums out, which is like insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were cranking them out those first couple of years. And, and, and so I got into them. I got into punk in, when I was nine in the, at the end of eight, 1987 and Ramones and Sex Pistols. Through your brother? Like, uh, no, not through my brother. Uh, how did I get into them? I don't know. I was just curious about like the records. We still had the records at our house and I would just start going through the records and listening to them. Cause I thought they were kind of, I would go to Aaron's records on Melrose with my dad and there would be like punk rockers shopping there. And I'd be like, I'd be like afraid of them because they always be <laughs> like bad guys in movies, like guys with Mohawks. And shit. Yeah. <laughs> or always like the, the tough, like, like the, like the gang members in in eighties movies. So I was like, sure. Oh, it's a punk rock. I'd be scared of them, but also kind of fascinated. And then I just started listening to like, nevermind the bollocks and the great rock and roll swindle soundtrack as a goof. Like, this is so funny. Look at that. Look, look at how weird these people look and how funny they sing. And then I, I just, at some point, you know, there was like a switch that went off where I like self identified with it. But yeah, Ramones were in that in all that too, and so that was that would have been everything up to and including Halfway to Sanity had already come out, and then like I remember Ramones Mania coming out, and that was eighty eight. So that's how I got in the Ramones. Yeah, that that's when I was born, eighty eight. Okay, yeah, I was already <laughs> a Ramones fans. I've been a Ramones fan since before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Cool. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's pretty young, nine years old. Um, yeah. Uh, what makes the Ramones so good? Um, damn, I don't know, man. I, like I think it down. starts with their songs because they. I've heard interviews with John. It's, it's funny, John. I've heard interviews with Johnny talking about the songs, but he was the barely barely involved with songwriting. But he really talks about how what was most important was finding a hook like a you know a, so every song was sort of built around a hook and he was like you know we want to have a catchy verse and then a chorus that's even catchier than the verse and you know the ultimate goal is to have a bridge that's even catchier than the chorus which he according to johnny they they've seldom achieved and maybe only the beatles could do that i was just gonna say that sounds like something i heard john lennon say about the beatles 
Mm, yeah, I wonder like, if you, you just have all these parts and each part sounds better than the one before it. Huh, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wonder if he, he got that from Lennon. I wouldn't be surprised. But if you listen to a song where the bridge was the best part, I don't know, would that be like, would you just be like, God, why couldn't that have been the part, like <laughs> uh, the verse of the chorus so at least I could hear it more than once? I don't know. Yeah, probably. Probably. Well, that was the goal. And I think Johnny says in the interview, they never, maybe never achieved that, but that was like, they were striving for, for it to have a bridge that's even better than the chorus. I think 53rd and 3rd, the bridge is the best part of the song because you hear Dee Dee singing about pulling out his razor blade and doing what God forbade. And now the That's cops true. are after me, but I proved that I'm no sissy. Yeah. They, okay. At, at least one child, at least once they achieved a bridge better than the, <laughs> there might be more, but yeah, the uh, Ramones are great because they have great songs and, and um, they're so for their time, their, the aggression was unparalleled. And um, I don't know. It's just the, it's like a aggression mixed with like great song because you I can yeah. think of like certain bands that are like really noisy but just didn't really have great songs in the way that the Ramones did. And they were like they created their own universe. Like they created this Absolutely. way of of looking and sounding that didn't exist before. Like like we think like I think of the Ramones as like ground zero for punk music, even though you could say like the Stooges, MC five, and then go back and back and back. But I mean, as far as like straight up, this is punk music. You can't fucking argue it. This is not proto punk. This isn't like, you know, this is just straight up punk. They are like the template. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think punk starts with them because anything else people didn't call it punk at the time. Um, right. It was only afterwards where people people were recognizing it as similar as similar to what the Ramones did. Um, and what did they think about the co- people calling referring to them as punk? Were they against it or were they for it? I don't, I can't remember. I think they were kind of neutral. Like I, I think they didn't fully embrace it at first, but then once they realized it was a thing, I mean, they certainly wrote, you know, uh, Judy is a punk, pretty That's early true. on, and 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 various other Sheena is a punk rocker. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. But but I think there there may have been some hesitation at first, um, especially well, maybe especially after the Sex Pistols really got such a so much infamy and press. I think they at some level didn't want to be associated with that. Maybe. Um, yeah. So, um, and then your favorite Ramones album? I know I'm skipping around. I'm I'm hijacking the conversation. But what's your favorite Ramones album? Oh man! All right, my favorite is Leave Home. Um, okay, I just think that has the most great songs, and the production is really good. Um, that's my favorite. Do you know about Sun Dragon Studios? That's where um, Leave Home was recorded. Is that uh, is that like uh, getting a little mixed up? Is that the one that the Woodstock guys made? I don't know. I my my aunt's husband which is my cousin's father he co-owned sun dragon studios and and one other really famous album was recorded there all in the same year i can't think of what it was but anyway yeah um but i always thought that was weird like yeah, I think they were rec- they recorded in a lot of studios that were like just opening so they could get like cheaper rates because they weren't established studios yet. Yeah, and like the first album was recorded at Radio City Music Hall in the upstairs where the orchestra practices or something. Yeah, and like and like recorded at the graveyard hour so they could get like yeah. cheap rates. Uh like they'd they'd finish recording at like six AM and start around midnight, I think. But do you know if That's any not a long day? They probably fin start more like ten and end at six. Yeah. But do you know if any other bands recorded there at, at where that first album was done? I think so. I, God, I can't, I'm, I can't remember who, but I mm. did, I do recall reading that somebody else, at least somebody else recorded there, but I think it was mostly used not for rock bands, but maybe for like commercials and radio and stuff, voiceover stuff, uh, stuff like that. It wasn't, you know, because most rock bands probably had a, you know, if you were recording, which most rock bands weren't, if you didn't have a record deal, we're, we're probably recording at a nicer studio. 
but that seems like a really nice, I mean, Radio City Musical, that's famous. Like, that seems like a nice place to record. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's not like a shithole, but I think it's not like known for recording rock. Yeah. Um, Dude, think about trying to find a producer when punk was just being invented. You, it's not like you could be like, oh, this guy's produced a lot of punk records before. I can just work with him. It's like, you're the first punk record. <laughs> like you have- yeah, well, that's where Tommy, maybe the genius of Tommy, because Tommy Ramone had worked at the record. See, this is where, where like most rock bands, if they had a record, they'll record a place like the Record Plant, which, yep. which was a nice studio. And that's where Tommy had worked as kind of like a low-level engineer. Like, I don't even think he had made it to like engineer. He was like assistant engineer. Mm-hmm. But he had experience in the studio and enough that he could produce. And then the first album, they teamed him up with just sort of someone that worked at Sire Records. But then the second album, Craig they, Leon, Craig Leon, yeah, Craig Leon was like sort of the Sire guy. And then the next album, they brought in um, someone whose name I can't remember, but he had like like disco hits on his resume already. Not Ed Stasium. Not Ed Stasium was. Let me look this up. Ed Stasium was this guy's. Um, engineer so like okay ed stasium came along with but that second album sounds good yeah because they had the the um t- tony bongiovi oh. think he's italian um he's he's related to john bongiovi is he yeah really but that's not the second album that's the third album you just pulled out i know but they had the same producer <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah but yeah ed, and ed stasium came yeah. along with him he was like, like this was like you know, if you're like a hotshot producer, you have your own engineer that you work with. Um, so yeah, yeah, he had hits with like Gloria Gaynor and some other disco people. I'm almost certain he's related to John Bon Jovi. That's not, I'm not making a joke, even though using the name John Bon Jovi in most contexts uh, would be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> in this, in this instance, it's not. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, I want to rewind a little bit to pre-record deal Ramones and just sort of how different of a world it was where like most bands were playing cover songs and, um, and just kind of how bizarre that like the first like two years, the Ramones were a band, almost all of their shows were at the same club, CBGBs. That's actually a good thing. I think. Yeah, no, I think it's good, but it's just, it's just so different now. Like, like imagine if a band now was like, Oh, we only play at this one club and we play there like every other week or twice. I mean, there have been moments in my life where I've been in a band that like we, you know, get into a groove and we're playing mostly at the same place a lot. I don't know. That's not, I don't think that's that uncommon. Really? I've, I've, I've only played, I've played the same place like a couple times, but it's never been like, you know, we've played here like, like 50 times in one year or something. Yeah. I think like being the house band of a place depending if it's a good place and there's a scene around it can, can be a good thing as long as you eventually break out of it and tour. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just, you know, the times have changed or maybe not as you, as you were saying, but yeah, I thought that was kind of unique. That, that they only seldom didn't play at CBGB's. Right. Um, I want to say Dead Boys played a lot of shows there too because their manager was the owner of CBGB. Totally. And, and yeah. I mean, you, you've probably heard this story in my podcast and other places too that, that the Ramones, I think it was really Joey, invited them to come play CBGB's. And they were like, whoa, this is better than what's happening in Cleveland. After right, because they were called Frankenstein, I think, when they were yeah, in Cleveland. That's- that sounds right. Um, yeah. And they looked like there's photos of them. It's funny. They're all straight up New York dolls looking. Yeah. They all have long hair, yeah. huh? Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of the other interesting thing is it seems like, like for example, Johnny Thunders, he'd be playing at Max's Kansas city all the time, but he wasn't really playing CBGB so much. Maybe I'm a couple times, but it was like, you'd see Johnny Thunders at Max's and you see the Ramones at CBGB's and the dead boys at CBGB's. Oh, really? Like even you were talking about heartbreakers era. Yeah. Heartbreakers era. Okay. All right. I didn't know that. I never, I didn't think about that. Huh? Yeah. That seems like once you built like a relationship with a club, that was like your 
home base. Cause there weren't, it's, you know, it's not like now where you could, there's probably dozens of, if you, if you, for some reason wanted to book a show, you could do it at dozens of different clubs. I think there's really only a couple in, at that point. Right. Um, right. For punk, I guess. For, for punk. And I think for anything where you weren't just going to be playing the hits of the day. Yeah. 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 Um, that is so weird because if you think about it, like what about the fucking bands on the radio? They're playing their own songs. So at what point were they allowed to play their own songs? You know what I mean? Like foreigners playing their own songs. I think a lot of it was like in a lot of the, a lot of these people that were had hits in the seventies got their careers started much earlier. Like, like Fleetwood Mac being a super obvious example. They had already been a band for like close to, well, maybe not quite 10 years, but they'd been a band for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and I think maybe in LA, there was a few places like the Troubadour where you could get, the, you could get discovered at the Troubadour right? and stuff like that. But it wasn't like, you know, if you, it's like, if you were at like a random bar, you probably weren't yeah. expected to, or maybe you'd play like 10 covers and one original and this, you know, like, right. you know, who did that is, um, twisted sister, right? Oh. Like they would be playing a bunch of covers and then some original songs too. And that was like okay. what they did probably oh. at about the same time. We're not going to take it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, cool. And then, all right. So, so Ramones get a record deal. Ramones in the seventies as the, the, they begin touring, that mm. kind of starts a whole nother thing where it's like, everyone who becomes an important punk musician and probably also a lot of new wave musicians and other, other people that end up doing interesting things, go to these early Ramones shows. Um, right. Like I know like Keith Morris and Greg Ginn of black flag were at like the first Ramones show in Hollywood. That was opening for the flaming groovies. Yeah the Roxy or the whiskey. I can't remember one of those two. And then, and then the interesting thing is like, it was either on that tour or the next one. They, they played a bunch of suburbs like in, in Southern California, like they played like the Hollywood clubs and then they played like, I want to like somewhere in either like the inland empire or like the Mm. South, South Bay. Um, but I, I've, I read that, uh, Chuck Dukowski, also a black flag. He was at one of those shows at these suburbs. Can you imagine being the flaming groovies and going on after the Ramones? Like, dude, just fucking just, just end it. I know they're a good (laughs) band, but come on, dude. Yeah. Yeah. No, I said, that's what I said in the podcast. Like the flaming groovies were a great band. It sounded like a great band from the sixties and the Ramones sounded like the future. Um, right. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody being able to follow the Ramones really because they had, were so even stuff like just blitzing from one song to the next. I don't know that anyone had really done that before. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess they they did open for Blue Oyster Cult and at around that era. Um, right, which is funny, but then again, but I think so. Who, the, who else are you going to play with when you're the fucking first punk band? It's not like you're going to play with a bunch of punk bands. Yeah, no. And I think, I think with something like that, where we're opening for a band like blue oyster Cult, it's like such a huge crowd that they're only kind of marginally paying attention to the opener anyway. Well, my dad saw the Ramones open for black Sabbath at the long beach arena in 1978. Oh, really? And he said that the audience was openly hostile towards the Ramones and everyone who came from Warner by the way, Black Sabbath was also a Warner act. Um, we're all team remote. Like the, the employees were like team Ramones. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Remembering his story, him telling me this wrong, but. Right. But, huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That's, that's super interesting. He was there. Cause, cause yeah, that's, that's sort of documented that like on, I guess the show in Atlanta, they, they decided they just like walked off stage. They were like, we're not even going to finish our set. Cause everybody's like booing us. So they did a whole tour opening for black Sabbath. I think they did like three or four shows. Okay. But like the one in Atlanta was specifically billed as punk versus metal. And this was like, like Sid vicious had, had killed Nancy like, like a week or two before the show. So everybody was just like, you know, fuck punk rock, fuck this freak music. Isn't it funny how like 
I mean, let's pretend the Ramones were still alive and they could get back together. If the Ramones and Black Sabbath played a show today, okay, not today because it's COVID-19, but (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. Okay, pretend the Ramones are all still alive. Pretend there's no fucking pandemic happening right now. And Black Sabbath and the Ramones play a show together. There wouldn't be one person in the audience being like, fuck punk i'm team heavy metal or fuck heavy metal i'm team punk it's just like the two universally recognized incredible like groundbreaking bands like they're basically classic rock like everything enough time passes you become classic rock you know yeah, i mean green day is is played on classic rock stations now right it's classic rock yeah that's right that makes sense yeah i mean yeah. i guess it depends what because i think of classic rock as sort of like stuff that was recorded in the late 60s up to maybe like the early 80s. And then to, to me, I mean, not, not like I make the rules, but to me, that's like the era of classic rock. You know, just because yeah. you're, you're a rock band that's like 20 or 30 years old doesn't necessarily, in my book, qualify you as classic rock. Right. It's like the whole thing about like old school rap, like that actually meant anything, like stuff that came before Run DMC. And now it's like Run DMC is fucking considered old school. Who are we kidding? They're old school. Like that shit was a long time ago. Yeah. Like Uh, Eminem is considered old school. Right. So like any, it's the same idea. Like anything that came out 20 years ago is like old school, quote unquote. There's my air quotes again. when When it actually was at one time used to define a specific era and style sure yeah i think it depends like yeah it depends if you want to just if just generically say oh this is old school or this is classic rock or oldies is another term like that or if you want to have like a specific uh, definition like things from this year to this year right um, but ramones are like like and the type of person that would have thrown things at them in 1978 is probably a, at least a marginal fan of theirs in 2020. You know, Absolutely. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or yeah, at least, at least would recognize them. It's kind of funny how, how that changes. Um, in fact, I want to talk about that more in a second, but let's talk about the Ramones in the eighties first. Um, All right. So I feel like, um, that was kind of an interesting era because their, their, their contemporaries, a lot of them were having huge hits. Like the, like the biggest bands in the world were like, were like uh, new wave bands, uh, many of which were influenced by the Ramones or had at one point opened for the Ramones. Um, but- I like your theory about the, the, why there were no singles for pleasant dreams. Cause Johnny probably was like, that would cost us money. Yeah, I think that's it. Because the the album opens with "We Want the Airwaves," so you'd right. think they would make an effort to get the airwaves. Yeah, uh, but I I don't think so. Because yeah, Johnny says in many interviews that he gave up on ever having a hit after End of the Century, the fifth album, and the sixth album comes out, and it sounds very commercial, but they yeah. didn't didn't even put out a single. Um, which is weird because. I think maybe, I mean, who knows? This is kind of a huge question. What a shoulda, coulda. But it seems like at some point in the 80s, one of these songs could have been a huge hit, like Bonzo yeah. Goes to Bitburg or, yeah. or um, if Bonzo or At t- the Moon. Like those songs, because those songs don't even sound that punk, really. They, they kind of just sound like a radio hit. Yeah, there's no reason Howling at the Moon shouldn't have been huge or the KKK took my baby away unless some, you know, um, Klansman was the program director for a radio station might not want to play that, but the, yeah, those are totally made for the radio. Great songs, but think about what would have happened if like howling at the moon did become a massive hit. Ramones would be thought of as a one hit wonder. And then there'd be people who'd be like, but that's not even their best song. And they had all these great albums before that. And it just would have been this, whole struggle of trying to justify yeah. where the Ramones stand in music history. Whereas now there's no struggle at all. It's like the Ramones are just this great band that never, they never had their day in the sun, but, but you know, whatever they're influential. Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting perspective. Cause they, cause you know who, who kind of that's the case for is Devo. You totally. Know, whip it. Devo yeah. has like a whole catalog of great albums, but they're sort of known as the one hit wonder with yeah, it. The whip band. it band. Yeah. That happens with, with a lot of, 
with a lot of bands. I mean, but it could, it's like, I mean, it was this all in this hypothetical other universe, but the Ramones could have had, you know, like, like five or 10 hit songs. Oh yeah. I mean, they made, in my opinion, 30 or 40 songs that are, I would consider classic or more than that, but, but that could have worked on the radio, I guess, yeah. in some, in some alternate universe where the only standard would be the, the song is good in which to play music on the radio. But think about like, think about like howling at the moon becomes a, a platinum selling, you know, massive hit for the Ramones. You know, they're just going to follow that up with a, like 12 songs that kind of sound like howling at the moon. <laughs> like, it's, it was just, it would totally derail them. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, who, <laughs> no, no way to know really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, possible. Okay, let's fast forward to the 90s now. Um, and the 90s are kind of interesting because the Ramones had kind of been accepted at that point. Like they were on TV shows like The Simpsons. And I think they were also like musical guests on some late night shows. Um, but at the, same, at the same time, like they were still like a underground band for all intents and purposes. Okay, <laughs> that's cool. Ben, for those of you who uh, are not on this con- <laughs> con- <laughs> call right now, Ben is showing me a photo of those him of as you. a child with the Ramones, which is a pretty awesome photo um, in the 90s, which is the, the yeah. relevance of that. 1990. 1990. Wow, at the cusp of the yeah, 90s. August 1990. August 90. Wow. Okay, so there was that after at a show? That was the Escape from New York tour with that was the Debbie okay, Harry so- and the Tom Tom Club. Wow. Okay. Do you remember the whole show? Yeah. The, the, if we're not counting Debbie Harry's solo as punk, then the Ramones were the first punk band I ever saw. So, which is cool. Cause they were the first punk band. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty bad. Um, um, like, do you yeah. remember, like, I guess you were pretty young, but do you remember like, was, was, was everybody good that night or like, uh, like how was Debbie Harry? That's hard. Debbie Harry, they was was with Chris Stein on guitar, and they did some Blondie songs. They did Heart of Glass, definitely. So why weren't they calling it Blondie if it was the two? Because it wasn't Blondie. Because I think it was just those two, and then whoever the rest of the band was. Debbie Harry had hits um, on her own as on Deborah own. Harry. Okay. I didn't. Yeah, know that. yeah, yeah. Like French Kissing in the USA was a hit. I forget what else, but um, yeah, she was kind of. That was the era. What about um, the Tom Tom Club? Were they good? You remember? Um, I think they took turns with the, the order of the bands every night. And then mm-hmm. the night I saw was Ramones playing in the middle and Tom Tom Club headlining. Hmm. Well, they had that we, huge hit, the whatever the love genius song. of love. Genius yeah. Of love. Yeah. Which is like their only good song, but it's so good. It's like, <laughs> that's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that song is like a huge hit. I feel like people still that's like that song is still in in like the popular culture in a way. Oh, that yeah. Like Heart of Glass isn't, you know. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, a lot of rappers rapped over um, a Genius of Love and, and, and Mariah Carey just sang like different lyrics over it and it became its own song in the 90s. Yeah, maybe um, that's why it's so remembered. Maybe that's it. Probably. Um, but yeah, it was it was a it was a good show, man. I was psyched. I was jazzed. I got to meet the Ramones. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, My that's heroes. pretty awesome. Um, cool. And I saw them. I saw them at the. I'll just go through the four times I saw them. The second time I saw them was in November '92. It was at the Hollywood Palladium, and it was with Body Count and Big Drill Car and. It was the third of three night of three shows, and it was supposed to be Ramones with um, uh, House of Pain opening for them. Wow! That's Every weird. night, House of Pain got booed off the stage on the first night. House <laughs> of Pain got booed off the stage on the second night. The third night, they're like, "Fuck this! We're not doing this again." So they called Ice T, and they're like, "Emergency body count show!" And this is in the midst of the cop killers controversy. And I'm fucking watching Big Drill Car. The place is like still filling up. I'm watching Big Drill Car on the balcony and fucking Ice T's there. And I just spark up a conversation with him and he's cool as shit. And he brings me and my friend backstage to meet the meet body count. And, wow. and I go, are you going to play the song? And he goes, 
fuck yeah, I'm going to play the motherfucking song. Fuck the police. So, they, <laughs> so Body Count did Cop Killer, and then the Ramones played. And, and so the first time I saw the Ramones, I guess a CJ had been in the band for one year, and Brain Drain was the newest album that had been out. The second time, 92, that was a Body Count, was the, the Mondo Bizarro was the new album that was out. The third time I saw them was Acid Eaters Tour. So was that 93? Tell me. That sounds right. And that was also at the Palladium. The fourth time I saw them was the Adios Amigos Tour. So I'm assuming that would have been 95. Also at the Hollywood Palladium. Then, and they, they're saying, this is our last tour we're ever doing. This is our last show in LA. They come back the next year. They play Billboard Live, which had been called Gazzari's and then later was called the key club. And now I don't even know what it's called. And I was like, fuck these guys. They said the show I saw last year was supposed to be their last show in LA. <laughs> and now they're saying this is their last show that and don't go. And it ends up being the last show they ever play. What's so interesting maybe I should have gone. is that, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, if, if you could have known the, the palladium is much bigger than, than, the whatever the last club they played their their last oh, show at. billboard like, live yeah like substantially like like four times bigger yeah yep yeah so i don't know like what they were thinking and with all the all the special guests and all that i don't i don't know what that was about i think i i think they wanted to sell like a like a video oh i think that was a johnny ramone scheme of like well and they did it's a or it's, i don't know if it's a video but it's a live album at least um Okay. So I think and, that was, was it good? Did you watch the whole thing? I don't think I've watched it. I don't know if the, maybe, maybe I made the video part up or I just haven't watched it, but the, the oh. album is, is okay, but it's like, you know, it's kind of a novelty almost like a hey, last Ramon show. It's not like, you know, I'd rather listen to like, it's alive from 1977. Um, yeah. That, which is incredible. It's like the best live album ever. One of the best live albums ever. Yeah. Very. Yeah. They, it, it is amazing. Um, and the, the openers, I think if I'm remembering, I don't have this in front of me, but I think that the lineup was like Rosillo's generation X and Ramones on dude. <laughs> I'm jumping and, in and the house of pain right now out there too. And house of pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they played Body an count. early version of jump around, uh, a young iced tea, uh, rapping. No, um, that but sounds that, incredible, yeah. man. Circling back, that's pretty iced tea with the Ramones. I didn't know they ever played together. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And even and, House and of Pain, Ram I had no idea House of Pain. <laughs> not that that that's not as cool, but House of Pain didn't. Is am I remembering right that House of Pain sort of became Cypress Hill? Same producer, Same DJ producer. Muggs. Muggs, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's good, uh, actually. I like Muggs. Yeah, he knows what he's doing, but. um but he, hey, you know, he's no, he's no D.D. King. Let me tell you. <laughs> D.D. King on the mic, 150 pounds of dynamite. <laughs> that rhyme is um, sick. You can't deny that. <laughs> the, when I saw the Ramones on the Acid Eaters tour, the opening band was Frank Black. You know, the singer of the Pixies. Okay. So he, he, his first album had just come out and it had a kind of a hit where he goes, I want to live in Los Angeles. I want to live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Maybe he said Los Angeles and I'm imagining it Los Angeles. But, um, and then I want to say the last time I saw the Ramones, which was, um, Palladium 95 Adios Amigos tour, some band called Gwen Mars opened for them. Do you know them? Gwen no, Mars. But I, I just remember thinking, why do they always have these shitty bands open for them? Like everyone loves the Ramones. You could get anyone you wanted to open for you, you know, but whatever. Yeah. Weird. Weird. So, okay. So you kind of already beat me to this, but I want to talk about times we interacted with the Ramones. Um, I have a few stories I'd like to share. Um, well, first time is, so I, I was too young to ever see the Ramones, but I have seen several Ramones play solo shows. Um, the first of which was Marky. And I think you were there. It was this weird event at the um, Olympic auditorium in Los Angeles. It was like Marky Ramone flipper, the germs and fear and suicidal tendencies. Were you at that? I was there, man. 
Yeah, and that was like the biggest, the biggest brawl like uh, any of us have ever seen. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, scary, and there was the scariest shit ever. And 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 my friend Steve Dubrow uh, just made a documentary about the Olympic Auditorium. Yeah, so that, I've seen the trailer for that. It looks amazing. I want. I can't wait yeah. to see that. And just so if people don't know, the Olympic Auditorium was home to boxing and wrestling and all kinds of live events like that in Los Angeles for years, and then eventually became home to punk shows and metal shows in the eighties and, and at least one in the two thousands that me and Ben were both at. Yeah. I think only one. Yeah. Cause yeah. it was already like, wow, the Olympic, this is where people used to go in the eighties. And, and it's like, and it's violent like the eighties. Although David Jones was there and he says that show was more violent than any show he went to in the eighties. And I'm like patting myself on the back. All right. I got the eighties experience <laughs> and then some. Yeah, I remember like, well, first Marky Ramone, I remember being good. I remember he had people on stage that looked like Ramones, like they were dressed like Ramones. Yeah, that shit was not good, dude. No, it was not good. Okay. <laughs> well, I was like, I was 15 or 16, so, so I didn't have the, the, as much perspective. So I, I thought everything was good, probably. Same, same. Like when I saw the Ramones, I thought they were good. And like, there's footage of it, that second show I saw, the 92 one, and they're just playing everything too fast and there's they're no feel it. to any of the songs. So too bad well any, anyway but the show was crazy because i remember there were just like 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 um it looked like like you know like a if you see like like a recreation of like a battle in ancient rome where there's like two lines of of people like running into each other that's how oh, i remember wow. that's how i remember like these phalanx of like buff guys with uh with their shirts off I remember these two like lines of people just like punching each other and beating the shit out of each other it seemed, seemed like there were like 10 or 20 people on each side. And that Ramona shows in the nineties were not, I mean, it wasn't brawls, but it was like going to, like I saw also at the Palladium in the nineties, I saw bad religion a few times there. I saw fear, uh, the adolescence, the toy dolls, the damned all original lineup, seven seconds, like a lot. I, I went to a lot of shows in the nineties like, and more like, you know, like some of the bands I just named are like hardcore bands, like adolescents yeah. or whatever. If you turn the camera on the audience at those Ramon shows I went to, you wouldn't know the difference. You'd be like, that was, that's probably an adolescent show, like circle pitting, like, like crowd surfing, like no different, no different than a hardcore show. Like right. full on. Maybe that's why they were playing faster. They, they wanted to, I don't know. Yeah. Have that going on too. Um, okay. Well, I have another funny story of when, um, when Marky's book punk rock blitzkrieg came out, which I think was probably about five years ago, four or five years ago. Um, he did some speaking dates and I went to one in Los Angeles and moderating it was Tom Kinney, the who among other things is the voice of uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. And, um, so Marky was talking, Marky's very monotone. He's like, and then, in 1982, Dee Dee says so it's like very slow, and and so Tom Kenny is there making sound effects to like make it more interesting while Mark is uh, talking. So that was pretty funny. And then um, the the real weird thing though is so um, when I I'm walking up to it was at a bookstore. I'm walking up to the bookstore, and there's all these people outside holding signs, and I'm like, uh, you know that's a whole nother level. Like I'm a pretty big Ramones fan, but it would not ever occur to me to show up with a sign to a book signing. Um, and then I get a little closer and realize that all of these signs are actually uh, mocking Marky for wearing a wig. Uh, <laughs> How many people are holding the signs? I would say about 10. So there's about 10 people and they're like Ramones lyrics but like about wigs. So it'd be like, I don't want to be a wig head no more. And, <gasps> and stuff like that. Like, like kind of like, uh, seem needlessly mean. Uh, <laughs> I, so I was kind of like, who are these, who are these like losers that care this much to like, try to like rag on Marky for allegedly wearing a wig. Uh, they would take time to show up to a book signing. And, uh, I realized I get there that I knew one of them. And he like was kind of being like, he, like he seemed like he didn't like, or he was bummed out that I, that I, that he ran into me there. And then after, so I, you know, we saw the book talk, whatever it was cool. And, and, um, afterwards I see this guy again later and he's like, dude, 
Linda Ramon paid us all like hundreds of dollars to go out there and hold those signs up. What? Why? Because, so I guess the book was kind of like tell all. And I guess he, he put a lot of dirt out on, uh, you know, it's stupid, petty stuff, but he said, he said some stuff about Johnny that I guess she, and maybe some stuff about other Ramones too, that she felt like, you know, she's like, Oh, you're putting everybody else's dirt, but your own. So she wanted to like, to have this crowd of people following his book signings, making fun of him. But you read the book. So tell me what was the dirt? Like, Oh, just not, not anything that stuff that you heard in the podcast or stuff that you might just know from listening, from reading about the Ramones other plays, just that Johnny was a dick and he was conservative and you'd be rude to people. And you, no, nothing mind blowing. If you know yeah. about the history of the Ramones. Um, yeah. But, but nevertheless, hilarious that she actually took the time to organize protests. At you know, yeah, that is funny. I just realized if, if COVID hadn't happened, I would be in Europe right now on a book tour with the photographer who took most of the photos for Cold Chillin' Records. His name is George DuBose. And he also took every photograph on either the back or front of every Ramones album from subterranean jungle to the, to, to audios amigos. So cool. yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell people like, give it what is what is cold chilling records? Cause probably a lot, there's probably not a ton of overlap. Um, so like, what, what is that all about for somebody who's never heard of it? It was a, a rap label, a uh, hip hop label that started in the 1986 and ended around the mid nineties or late nineties. And they put out a bunch of rap records by people who belong to this uh, collective called the juice crew. So Bismarcky, big daddy Kane, cool G rap and DJ Polo, MC Shan, Roxanne Shante, master ace, the genius who later became the Jizza when, uh, and, and, uh, co-founded the Wu Tang clan. And, um, Here's, here's a little Ramones connection is if you look at the cover of the first Bismarcky album, which is entitled going off, which is also the name of my book going off the story of the Jews crew and cold chilling records. So this first Bismarcky album, look at that and then look at the cover of Mondo Bizarro by the Ramones. It's virtually the same record cover. And, um, Basically, it George DuBose took both photos, and um, it was kind of a throwaway shot in the photo session for Bismarcky, where he held up a piece of I forget what the material's called, but it makes it look like your face is distorted, like you're in a funhouse, right? Like a fisheye or some some other effect. It, it's like a, a material you would hold up, and it's reflective. So oh, it's like so it's not warped. the lens; it's some some other right. Okay. It's like you're looking into a warped mirror, and then you take a photo of that material. I, I want to say Kevlar, but that's, that's what you make bulletproof vests out of. It's not Kevlar, <laughs> but, but, um, they did a photo session and I can't remember if it was the president of cold chillin or if it was Bismarcky himself. We're, we're like, it must've been the, it must've been one of the cold chillin owners. We're like, we'll just use that one. And he's, and George DuBose is like, what? This is like a throwaway shot. Like, this is like, really? Yeah, I just used that one, and that became the record cover, and he just reused the same idea. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It worked the first time for Ramones, Mondo Bizarro. Same, it looks, they, they look virtually identical, except it's all four Ramones, in, and their bodies are distorted, you know, with how did him. He hook, how did he hook up with Cold Chillin'? I think Cold, he was, take, he was doing photos for, Cold Chillin' was like a label called Prism before it was Cold Chillin'. Well, Prism was a little bit different. It was one of the two Cold Chillin' owners. And he did photos for them. God, he t it's in the book. you got to buy the book. I can't <laughs> yeah, remember. There you go. All right. That's a plug yeah, for the book. Yeah. So get Ben's book. He, yeah. It's called Going Off, The Story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. There we but go. Yeah, I am a, it is written by a punk rocker. See if you can spot any sort of reference to punk in it. There are a few, not many. Okay. Are the Ramones the greatest band of all time? If, if you believe that I'm not mad at that. 
I'm not I, I, I do believe that I would say they're my favorite band and I'd say that they may be the greatest. So you're saying there's a difference between favorite and greatest here. I, I, there, there could be, uh, I'm not, I'm not taking okay. a hard stand on that, but my, I, here's my case for them being the greatest. Um, I think they have more good albums than any other band or probably even any other artist. Um, because mm. I think the first seven Ramones albums are great, and I don't know anyone else who has seven great albums. So the the eighth one being "Too Tough to Die," yeah, which I still think is is really good too. I just think there's some songs on there that are more filler, not as good as as the rest of the album. But you think the first seven albums? There are no bad songs on the first seven albums. Not no bad, no no duds at all. Uh, the, the one exception is I, I think the two covers, two of the covers on, um, subterranean jungle are a little bit, they're not horrible, but they're not the best. Which um, ones? A little bit of soul and time has come today. A little bit uh, of soul. I think it sounds is terrible. <laughs> I always skip it and I love subterranean jungle, but yeah, that it doesn't, it's bad. Yeah, that, yeah, those two, but I still think the rest of that, I, I don't think those suck. I just think they're not that good, but I think the rest of that album is, is pretty great. You know what I was thinking about the other day was Do You Want to Dance? And this can apply to other songs that Ramones covered in their early years. If you gave someone, in fact, you might have been this person, uh, one of those Ramones albums, and you said, guess which one of these songs is a cover? You wouldn't be able to do it because they all sound like they all sound like Ramon songs. Yeah. And you know probably, I mean? yeah, probably like many Ramones fans. I didn't realize a lot of these songs were covers until later, like needles and pins, for example. I, I never know, was hot about that song either. Really? I mean, their version of it. I didn't I, think it was that. I, I like that one, but I didn't realize that was a cover for years. Um, but anyway, okay. So I'm not done making my case. So I, I think they've got more great albums than anyone else. And I think they've got more great songs than anyone else. Cause I feel like okay. every Ramones album, has has great songs and and not just one but multiple great songs some of some some of which have every song being great um and i think they that nobody can touch them as far as like i can't think of another band that started as maybe black sabbath is the only other one that started a completely their own movement and genre just based on their existence that's still relevant today like i feel like you know, right now, any continent of the world, you can find punk bands that are cite the Ramones as a major influence that are like teenagers, probably. Yeah, that's a tough case to make because you just back up further and you go, well, the, the, they, this couldn't happen without the Beatles. So then you everything that the Ramones are responsible for, you can just put that under their, the Beatles and then you back that up and you go Elvis and you know what I mean? It goes, it's sure. like, well, yeah, I mean, you could always, you could always do that, but I don't think that many, I don't think many people are citing the Beatles as a major influence. I think of course they are. are like I, up and coming, like, like teenagers are like, I'm doing this because of the Beatles. Oh, in 2020. I have yeah. no idea. Dude, I'm so out of touch, but, but uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know, but like, I just, I feel like they're like, and the Beatles didn't, I mean, okay. The Beatles are, it is like, you know, everybody says like you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and that made them play guitar. So that was kind of a movement in a way, but, but I feel like the Ramones had a more codified movement. Do you, do you have, um, yeah, I have no, I have no problem with anyone saying the Ramones are the most important band ever, or the Ramones are the greatest band ever, or the Ramones are my favorite band ever. Me personally, my minor threats, my favorite band ever, but they wouldn't exist without the Ramones. They were a punk band. I know people think hardcore and punk are two different things, but nah, they're not. I mean, real hardcore is hardcore punk. Um, but, uh, yeah, Ramones are definitely in my top 10 bands of all time. And, and it's funny when you say the, that, they have more good songs, raw number of good songs than anyone else. I'm thinking like, do I agree? That might be true. Yeah. I mean, like, I haven't made like a spreadsheet, but I, I don't, I don't know if anybody has as many good songs as the Ramones, maybe the Beatles, maybe Beatles. The yeah. Beatles, Beatles probably. Well, it's close. It's, it's, it's definitely close. a toss up. Yeah. Because the Beatles have 14 albums, so do the Ramones. Same number of albums, if you count the White Album as two albums because it's a double. 
All right, I had to cut it off somewhere, and that seems to be as good a place as any. Um, I'm going to post a longer, unedited version of the conversation on Patreon for the supporters there. Yes, we're one of those shows now. Uh, the full conversation is a little over an hour and a half. Uh, I cut out some of the tangents we went on, but just to clue you in, we discuss how spiky-haired punk bands like Discharge and GBH were influenced by the Ramones. We talk about um, bands that sound like the Ramones, like the Donnas, the Zeros, and the Misfits. Uh, we continue the Ramones vs. Beatles discussion and onto a much more granular level. And we also identify the single best Ramones song. So if you want the full conversation, become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. That also supports the show and helps cover expenses. Uh, I'm buying a lot of books for the second season, and I'm not yet covering the costs of the books as well as the hosting. So if you can, consider becoming a patron. Um, I also announced the topic of the next season on Patreon which is nine more episodes about the Ramones. Just kidding. The next season is going to be about a different band, not the Ramones. Um, anyway, that can be found at guitarsandstolencars.com under the support tab. Um, also check out the website for sources and more information. Follow the Instagram, the new Instagram, guitars underscore stolen cars. Facebook at facebook.com slash guitars and stolen cars and also Twitter at Harley I Rother. That's me. Uh, if you're on Twitter, show me some love. I will follow you back. I literally have one Twitter follower. Shout out to Kevin the punk. Uh, this is getting embarrassing. I know that there are many people listening to this show and I'm sure there's more than just Kevin the punk on Twitter. Um, so I'm going to be posting cool stuff on there as well, like the photos and maybe some other stuff. Um, anyway, thank you for tuning in. Um, I may be able to do more bonus episodes. I have a few ideas that I think could be cool, but I can't say for certain right now. Uh, so thank you very much. Stay safe or stay dangerous. All good. Um, until next time, rock on. Rock on history,